Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast, where all of the topics will be with subject matter experts, practitioners and providers, leaders and managers who are implementing integrated health projects all over the world. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. Welcome back to Disruptors at Work and Integrated Care Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kara English. I'm the CEO of Cummings Graduate Institute. And today I have the opportunity to talk with CGI co-founder, Dr. Janet Cummings about the health impacts, including mental and behavioral health impacts of recent legislation, such as the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, which has received a lot of attention, but is certainly not nearly Um, you know, the only legislation that has been advanced. In fact, according to the Human Rights Campaign, 2021 was the worst year in recent history for state legislation attacking LGBTQ equality. A total of 268 anti-equality bills were filed, 27 of which were signed into law, including 13 that specifically targeted the rights of transgender youth. Even though 2022 is still relatively young, it's already shaping up to be similar to 2021 in terms of discriminatory state legislation. And what we have found in the research is that merely introducing anti-transgender and peddling anti-transgender rhetoric has already had a damaging impact. A new Trevor Project survey shows that a startling 85% of transgender or gender non-binary youth say that their mental health has been negatively affected by these legislative attacks. In today's episode, Dr. Cummings and I will address uh, CGI's perspective on uh, gender affirming and LGBTQ affirming health about the health impacts of anti-LGBTQ legislation and how our training and education is focused on advocacy for the healthcare needs of the LGBTQ community. So welcome, Dr. Cummings. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm the daughter of Dr. Nicholas Cummings and uh, Dorothy Cummings. Uh, my dad is, or was, he passed away a couple years ago an internationally recognized psychologist. My mother was a clinical social worker, so I had a really good upbringing, obviously. Um, I did some undergraduate study in uh, pre-med genetics, linguistics. I have a master's degree in linguistics with a psycholinguistic emphasis, and then a uh, doctorate in clinical psychology from the uh, School of Professional Psychology at Wright State University. I also have an honorary Doctor of Behavioral Health degree from CGI, and I think I'm even more proud of that one than my original doctorate. That was well-earned just as well as your other earned doctorate. I think so. It probably was more work than the first one. Probably true. Yeah. Um, I've written a number of journal articles and, and book chapters, some um, as a sole author, some co-authoring um, with my father. I've been an adjunct 
professor at a number of places, including the University of Nevada and Reno and the Forest Institute of Professional Psychology in Springfield, uh, Missouri. I was the co-founding associate director of the original Doctor of Behavioral Health Program at Arizona State University. And I served there as a professor until 2014 when my father and I co-founded um, the Cummings Graduate Institute. Um, within that um, organization, in addition to being chairman of the board, uh, I teach the uh, courses in the medical literacy pillar for the program, uh, pathophysiology, neuropathophysiology, and psychopharmacology. Um, I'm told that my students are, are pleased with me and like my teaching ability and style. Um, in addition to teaching as chairman of the board, I do a lot of work behind the scenes for CGI, um, helping ensure that CGI remains uh, funded and able to continue its operations as well as um, helping to provide support from the board of directors whenever needed for uh, decision making, new programs, things like that. Thank you, Janet. I really appreciate the the intro. Um, you know, certainly from the time when I was a student and first had you as one of my professors, I think it was pathophysiology. That was one of my first classes in the DVH program as a student. And I've absolutely always appreciated working with you and, and view, you know, have viewed you as my mentor now for many years. And, you know, just kind of want to um, affirm our, you know, close working relationship, you know, between the board as chairwoman of the board, and also as a co-founder, you know, uh, you know, for my position as CEO, you are the first call that I make anytime that I have a question about the vision of, you know, your founding family at CGI in terms of our curriculum. Anytime I'm, I have an idea, anytime I have a question, you're the first call that I make. And we've always enjoyed a close working relationship in, in terms of being able to problem solve and really look for opportunity as, um, you know, an educational institution. We work so, well together and I'm always happy to do it. Yeah, we do. And, you know, one of the things that we, that we work closely together on is uh, anytime we receive a question or an inquiry, which they do come in from time to time from the public. So through our website, we have an, an email address, info at cgi.edu. Mm -hmm. And for the last seven years, from time to time, we will get an inquiry related to a, an old interview that your dad did with an organization that has been very anti-LGBTQ. And so one of the things I wanted to do with you and that we talked about doing before we started recording this podcast was specifically speak to how his interview and how some of his you know, written words have been used or cited by anti-LGBTQ organizations when his actual feelings and opinions were anything but 
anti-LGBTQ. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask early in this interview or this, this discussion today was about reorientation therapy or, or conversion, th what is known as or what is referred to as conversion therapy. Um, so in other words, therapy that would attempt to make a homosexual into a heterosexual. Um, some of the citations about your dad's work have been used to as supportive for uh, conversion therapy or uh, reorientation therapy. Um, so do you feel NARTH or other organizations who are using those citations are you know, using his statements or beliefs fairly or out of context by these groups? These groups have used my father's words completely out of context. And you know, if you look at that original NARTH interview that uh, probably has been taken down from NARTH's website because I don't believe they exist anymore, but I'm sure that's out there on the internet. If you look at it, it's very, very clear that my father, number one, had moderate dementia at the time that that video was made. For one thing, he looks like this deer in the headlights that absolutely isn't tracking with anything. In addition to that, NARS did some very clever and I would say greatly unscrupulous um, editing of the things that my uh, father said to make his opinions look very different from what they uh, were in reality. Over the course of the next several years, I wrote several letters to NARS demanding that that be um, taken down. My family at one time looked into even the possibility of legal action mm -hmm. against NARTH, but by that time, the um, organization was breaking up. We would have to sue individuals, and our lawyer basically said, even though it's pretty clear they were in the wrong, that would not be um, an easy uh, case to make, and at that point, would not do anything to control um, the misrepresentation of my father that has been out there on the internet um, all of all of that time. Yeah, and I and I think that's the behind the scenes, you know, perspective that people don't have when they are, you know, googling, for example, um, your dad's name or, um, you know, what Narth or others other organizations, as you mentioned, I don't think people often understand how when someone puts something on YouTube, others can then just make a copy and then, you know, continue to use it, continue to edit it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that, you know, as we've seen with misinformation in any other area of healthcare or, you know, politics, it's more easy to spread misinformation than to convince people that they've been misinformed. And, you know, the point that my dad was trying to make on that interview, some other 
interviews, articles at that time really was in favor of patient rights, not in favor of taking anybody's rights away. He was always a human rights advocate to the core. Um, and what he intended to talk about was that patients have the right to choose their therapy goals. And I, I agree with that. I think most reasonable people in the mental health field would agree with that. And, you know, perhaps he used a bad example as an older man with some uh, dementia saying that if somebody, you know, who was not gay was caught up in a lifestyle that they wanted to change, they would have the right to do that. Now, he would have been the first to acknowledge that that was a hypothetical, likely a rarity if, if ever, but the point he was trying to make is that patients have the right to choose their therapy goals. And somehow that has been twisted through umpteen sharings of misinformation on the internet to look like he was in support of conversion therapy. My father was not in support of conversion therapy. He never practiced conversion therapy, and I don't believe that he ever would um, practice such a thing if he were still alive and practicing today. It simply was not in his makeup as who he was to do something like that. He recognized, you know, number one, that there's no evidence for the effectiveness of such a treatment. And he was um, a very, very strong advocate of outcomes research and testing the effectiveness of treatment protocols and refining them accordingly, nor would he have attempted to change a core part of a human being. His goal was to help people be the best them that they could be, not to alter them into somebody somebody else. That just was not him. Right, right. And in any of the conversations that I ever was, you know, privileged enough to have with your dad, that came that came through. Um, you know, without a doubt, one of the things that I enjoyed so much about talking with your dad about was, you know, learning how many battles he had to go through as an individual and as part of a very small group of other professionals, you know, primarily psychologists, but also some medical doctors on behalf of advocacy for patients' rights. Um, you know, some of the work that, that he did over the course of, of the years that he was a chief psychologist at Kaiser Permanente, as well as his experiences as the uh, leader of American Biodyne were really aimed at making sure that patients had access not to 
capitated or limitations, you know, based on what he called the bean counters, you know, but, but truly that they had access to care that they needed and that were in alignment with their goals, something that is still reflected in the Center for Medical, or excuse me, the, the CMS, you know, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare policies today. You can, you can look at, you know, Medicare policy and see that if the treatment is not in alignment with the patient's goals for treatment, that the patient has a right to um, object and you know to appeal and to ask for the care that is in alignment with their goals. And a lot of that, you know, truly you can trace back to some of the seminal work that Nick did at you know the, the federal level. Absolutely. And you know, he did quite a bit of work at the federal level. I can't count the number of times he testified before Congress. He was on um, mental health and health care in general committees for several presidents. Mm -hmm. um, he was instrumental in quite a bit of legislation that has championed human rights. For example, um, when he was president of the American Psychological Association, he moved the convention that had been scheduled because he did not want to have it in a state that was refusing to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment for women. Mm -hmm. He's done the same thing, moving very large meetings out of states that still had the old separate but equal mm -hmm. um, doctrine simply because he did not believe in those things and saw his power within um, the American Psychological Association and with his uh, respect and infamy that he was going to use that in support of human rights not to in any way uh, denigrate human rights. And um, when he was a member of the APA Council of Representatives in 1975, um, some years before he was president and moved a convention of 47,000 psychologists out of a non-ERA state, um, he sponsored the APA resolution that stated that homosexuality is not a mental disorder. And if you look back in literature, um, early editions of diagnostic manuals, homosexuality was listed as a mental disorder. Um, in 1976, that resolution passed unanimously and it was the first step in giving gays and lesbians the right not to be discriminated against in, in the workplace. And, you know, all of this got lost mm -hmm. because of one mm -hmm. unscrupulously edited video of an old man with dementia. Mm -hmm. I really feel that they took advantage of his position for, you know, in, in the direction of patient rights mm -hmm. to, you know, and, and, and this is often true of extremist organizations, you know, to, to craft questions 
to get the answers that they wanted that they could do to their own nefarious, you know, purposes. Um, Because one of the things that I recall talking about with your dad and, and also with you over the years is the work that he had done with survivors of sexual abuse uh, as a as a child, and I recall him, you know, mentioning the work that he had done to help those who were coming in with complaints of being sexually attracted or having sexual arousal towards same-sex individuals that they could trace back to their sexual abuse as a child. They did not identify as a gay individual, but the sexual attraction or arousal that they were having was in direct relationship and came from, you know, really was rooted in the trauma uh, that they had experienced during as a child during childhood. And, you know, the work that he was doing there was oriented at trauma resolution. It was never, ever rooted in trying to, um, you know, cause a person who is uh, you know, identifies as and, and is happy as a homosexual to be reoriented to heterosexual. Never, never. He was doing what we would now call trauma-informed care. Right. Decades and decades before there was the word or the concept of trauma-informed care. And, uh, you know, he was phenomenal at understanding individuals he could help an individual who thought they might be gay, who worried that they might be gay because of some same-sex molestation, sort it all out for themselves and be comfortable with their own um, conclusion. Never would he dictate or try to sway what that conclusion would be. And you know, if, it, if there was a need to treat trauma, that's what he would do. If there was a need to decide if and when and how to come out, that's the treatment that he would do. It was always directed by the desires and the best interest of the patient. And, you know, having talked to my dad as a many, many times regarding my own cases as a psychologist, going to him as a mentor, if I him and say, you know, I'm gay, but I don't want to be, will you help me not be gay? He would have let them know that that is not a workable goal. That is not in their interest and he would have reset a doable and affirming goal with that individual, even if it took a number of sessions to get them on board with not seeking um, a conversion therapy. That's, that's what he would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and a bit of information that has been lost in the internet hullabaloo over um, NARS and whatever during the late 1950s into the 1960s, my dad was the preferred psychologist of the gay and lesbian communities within San Francisco. And my dad through word of mouth got referrals from the 
gay and lesbian communities within San Francisco and was the preferred psychologist for um, these individuals. And he understood gay and lesbian people so well that a lot of his uh, clients assumed that he must be gay, even though he himself was, was not, but had an understanding of um, those groups of people and knew how to work um, effectively with them back in an era where even in San Francisco, most gay and lesbian people were closeted and just mm -hmm. beginning to think about um, perhaps being uh, more open about their sexuality. Also, um, when my uh, parents were moving to San Francisco from the East Coast after um, my father completed his um, PhD, they bought a house in what was rapidly becoming the first gay neighborhood in the United States in the heart of the Castro district. Um, they were living in that house when I was born and we continued living there until, I don't know, high school maybe for me. And uh, it was right in the heart of the Castro district. We were a five minute walk from the corner of Castro and Market. And at the time my parents bought that house, they knew it was becoming the first gay neighborhood in the country, even before Polk Street in San Francisco was becoming a, a gay neighborhood. And they did that because my parents had the belief that the people in that neighborhood would make good neighbors. Mm -hmm. They would keep up their property. They would look out for neighbors, they would look out for any children that my parents subsequently mm -hmm. had. And, um, you know, to deliberately move mm -hmm. a family or a potential family into mm -hmm. a gay neighborhood says a lot about attitudes mm -hmm. toward um, gay people. Yeah, especially in the time frame, you know, that you're talking about, you know, I, I think nowadays there are, you know, a lot of, a lot of individuals who have those attitudes, but, you know, at the time it was, it was a pretty unique attitude to have, especially openly. In the late 1950s, absolutely. It was a, it was a very, very unique attitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were still a lot of laws in many states against homosexuality and, you know, people could be jailed. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, you know, as someone that was raised by my parents, I can honestly say that I have never have heard my parents, either one of them, make a disparaging remark against anybody based on sexual orientation, gender, race, um, any of that. They chose their friends by the important internal qualities and taught me to do the same and never heard a disparaging remark against anybody based solely on you know race gender sexual orientation any any of those things 
Yeah, and you know, I really appreciate being able to to share this conversation, you know, with our audience because it's a conversation that you and I have had many times. And, you know, either via phone or in person and, you know, certainly with your dad before his death. And, you know, it's definitely information that I feel privileged to have known and learned about your family um, and, you know, your, your clinical orientation and work as well as your dad's, um, as well as your mom's beliefs as a social worker, you know, and a parent and, you know, a human being and, and a foundation, you know, leader now. Um, but it's certainly not information that our larger audience has been privileged enough to, to have, you know, learned about um, CGI, its founders, you know, and your, your family. And so, you know, one of the things that I am really glad that you were able to tell the story and also want to say how strongly that view influenced us as we were founding CGI from you know our very foundation as a vision for CGI we have always been very focused on equity and inclusion and on representing and advocating for the most vulnerable populations it literally makes its way into the DNA of every course that you know that vision of you know coming back from your dad's perspective of find a need and fill it we use that from a clinical perspective of, you know, where is the most harm being done by either action or inaction that needs to change and be innovative? And how can we make a difference in, you know, our population health classes and our medical literacy class? All of our classes are literally focused on making improvements and innovations. Um, and certainly from the perspective of our educational policies and our, you know, equity and inclusion and our values as um, an institution. So I, I really, you know, wanted together with you to set the record straight on our feelings about this, as well as the foundation of, of CGI, because we are really here to support everyone's access to high quality evidence-informed healthcare. And from our students and faculty and, you know, CGI community, we really review LGBTQ affirming practices to ensure that patients are not discriminated against in the care that they need. In fact, we do a lot of uh, provider, cross-provider education because there are still a lot of, you know, our medical colleagues out there, whether they're physicians or nurses who are either anti-LGBTQ because of some misinterpretation of religious morality or, you know, um, extremist kinds of, of beliefs. And that trickles down into their treatment of LGBTQ individuals who are seeking care. And so as a community, we work hard to really teach our students and, you know, really to make sure that we are inclusive of faculty and even in our podcast guests, you know, people who can really speak to the disparities for LGBTQ, especially trans population who are, you know, certainly receiving the most discrimination and, you know, how we can be part of breaking down those barriers. Um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's something I just really wanted us to be able to go on the record about. And, you know, and it's not just the, our LGBT patients, it's everyone. Mm -hmm. My dad had the belief, my mom has always had the belief, I have the belief that everyone 
is entitled to high quality health care, mm -hmm. regardless of what they look like, how they how they live their lives. Um, that that is not a factor in human beings being entitled um, to quality health care and informing CGI, we only sought to hire people that shared that belief and would design classes and teach our students mm -hmm. accordingly. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody out there has to like everybody else out there. You know, I'm not here to dictate anybody's personal mm -hmm. opinion on anything, but regardless of who out there may or may not like whom, human beings are human beings and all human beings share rights. Mm -hmm. All human beings deserve to be treated with kindness and respect mm -hmm. and all human beings deserve the same high quality health care that's not just for a certain group that meets certain criteria. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to bring up um, was that often in our society, and especially in, in Western nations where healthcare is not universal, um, policies can be too much, you know, centered around dollars and cents, or, um, you know, even the practice of medicine can be very centered around what those providers in that particular hospital or that particular practice, you know, want to do. And, and that's just never been us as an institution at CGI, mm -hmm. our compass rose is the people that we are out here to help. Um, so, you know, the people that we work with as, as educators and healthcare professionals really are, are our most important individuals um, and so we, we talk a lot about being a people first institution and, and certainly that, that term can be a buzz word and has been used at organizations I've interacted with where it is an absolute joke and is just ridiculous that they're even calling themselves a people first institution or that they have that as part of their values because it's, you know, demonstrably false. Um, and we just abhor that practice. Yep, we, we do everything we can instead to cultivate a culture of belonging, mm -hmm. um, collaboration, innovation, and mutual respect. That's, that's who we are, that's how we were founded. Um, and unfortunately in healthcare, we know that this is rarely the experience for consumers of care, and especially individuals from the LGBTQ population, mm -hmm. from marginalized ethnic and linguistic populations, and, and they often suffer the poorest health experiences and therefore some of the poorest health outcomes, including early death from treatable or preventable conditions due to avoidance of getting care or poor access to care or you know, not being able to establish a trusting rapport with a medical provider or medical team due to discriminatory or non-affirming practices not and, being given a voice in their own healthcare. Right. And, you know, so, you know, for today's conversation, I, I, you know, looked into some of the most recent statistics and, you know, certainly based on the 2021 and 2020, um, the legislation that had been advanced against or to limit rights for LGBTQ individuals, we know that the introduction of these bills, as I mentioned before, led to 
kiddos who were having trouble sleeping and a school district that banned graphic novels with a transgender character after one parent's complaint led to um, you know, 11 year olds who were having trouble sleeping. Um, you know, the human rights campaign tracked at least 50 violent deaths in 2021 alone. And those can be connected to the anti-trans and anti-gender conforming um, or sorry, anti-gender non-conforming people. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I looked about, looked at was, you know, especially when it comes to pediatric care, the more that children and adolescents are made to feel that their identities are not accepted, the more they are at risk for abusing alcohol and other substances, engaging in risky sex behaviors and contemplating or attempting suicide. And that's something that we see when you know, the don't say gay bill in Florida and other bills like it, Arizona is a state where, you know, CGI has been founded and Arizona is a state that has similar legislation on the books to one, prevent school officials from affirming kids, gender non-conforming choices, or if kids say to their teachers that they might be gay, they think they might be gay, they that they, they are looking at legislation now in Arizona and other states that would require um, those educators in K-12 schools to report that information to parents, even if they know that the child would be at risk for violence or child abuse. And in addition to that, there is legislation on the books which would remove any ability for a a child or an adolescent to bring pictures of their family if it includes same-sex couples. And that's, you know, part of the Florida don't say gay bill. It's, you know, oh, it's kind of like a new don't ask, don't tell, you know, um, kind of an effort. And we know what happens from a health perspective to these these children, these adolescents, and, and of course the adults who care for them. And I can say, you know, just within my own Um, personal experience, having many, many, you know, friends and chosen family members who are gay or lesbian, that, you know, it certainly has been a topic of increased worry and stress and anxiety in our lives, just based on feeling under attack. Um, So, you know, I can only imagine if I had, you know, if, if my son, who's now 16, were telling me, you know, that, that he felt he might be trans or he felt he might be gay. He would receive a hundred percent support in our family and certainly from our, our chosen family and, and friends. However, to go to school and feel like he's under attack, I can't even imagine what that would be like. No, nobody should be under attack at school. Right. It's, it's unacceptable that a kid be under attack at school for any reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that I wanted to give light to in this conversation is that there is anti-transgender content content on social media that is a radicalizing issue in and of itself. So even if it's not, you know, healthcare or school district or, you know, state legislation or federal legislation uh, to see on social media anti-trans information puts transgendered people in their position as the most marginalized, voiceless, and defensive 
defenseless, excuse me, community in, in the United States. Um, and we know that the leading health and welfare groups are fighting against these, you know, social media kind of ploys to gain support for these bills. Um, and we also know that through uh, PPRI data, which is a large United States poll, that 82% of Americans favor laws that protect LGBTQ people from discrimination in jobs, public accommodations, housing, and healthcare, and that both 67% of Republicans and 85% of independents and 92% of Democrats favor non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ, LGBTQ Americans. So the you know small, small slice of Americans who are speaking very loud on social media and are getting lots of traction in the news make really make it seem like there's more support in the United States than there actually is by a long shot for limiting rights. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the people on the extreme ends are those who will go and show up at a school board meeting or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a city or a county or a state, you know, meeting or, you know, speak to their legislature about their support for this. And so I really wanted to give light to the actual statistics in this podcast today for the number and percentage of Americans who really support rights and equality for LGBTQ individuals. And I wanted, you know, anyone out there who's listening in our audience to know that, you know, CGI as, as an institution is, is definitely not in the minority of institutions who are founded on equality and inclusion and rights for all. So, you know, I wanted to say a little bit about that and, and give you a chance to share your feelings about that too. Well, you know, as, as you're talking about what is out there on social media and how it's stirring up mm -hmm. some misinformation and some um, bigotry, so to speak, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the parallel of what we were talking about with my father mm -hmm. and the misinformation and the misquotations that he experienced that has affected my whole family for a number of years now and in some ways you know destroyed the legacy of someone that should have gone down in history is really one of the the greats in yep. terms of fostering human rights and uh, you know I see the same kind of social media internet thing mm -hmm. happening not just to an individual but to large groups of of people and uh, you know and, and it angers me that that is allowed to happen and with the statistics you quoted mm -hmm. those misinformation bigoted people obviously are not speaking for the majority of Americans, not even close. And yet somehow their voices are um, magnified above the voices of reasonable and, and rational people. Mm -hmm. and, and similar to what 
I've experienced, you know, trying to be a lone voice and correcting the misinfo about my dad out there on, on the internet and nobody's listening to that because misinformation just has a way of multiplying and, and spiraling out of control. And here we are seeing that happen to a significant um, group of people against the wishes of the majority of Americans. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you and, and certainly can can say that, you know, in, in the time, in the short time that I've spent as CEO for Cummings Graduate Institute, there haven't been a, a, a number of times that I've, you know, needed to speak to Nick's actual feelings and, you know, actual actions as it came to advocating for patients' rights. But the idea that someone who worked so hard for all of us, um, you know, for so many years, um, that his legacy of good acts and, um, you know, just such a fighter for, for the ability for Americans to get the mental health care that they needed in and for it to be covered equally as much as other physical health benefits were by insurance companies, you know, to see all of that be swept aside by misinformation would just be a tragedy, especially because our, you know, the legacy of CGI is built upon the strong foundation of equity and inclusion and respect for all persons. Exactly. Well, Janet, thank you so much for joining me today. I know we may receive some, you know, some follow-up questions, and I certainly hope that any of our students or, you know, CGI community members out there who are listening will have more information. If, you know, they ever had a question before, many of them may never have heard about you know, the, the video or anything else. But again, I, you know, in, in, in our conversations, we really talked about how we wanted to make sure that we had the ability to have, you know, the, the truth and, and accurate information and, and to put it out there. So we will be um, posting inf more information, um, you know, related to the actual statistics and, and polls and information about healthcare for LGBTQ individuals and, and certainly about some of the disparities and some of the great work that's being done to mitigate and reduce those disparities by our students and, you know, certainly by other researchers globally. Uh, because, you know, I really want to point to our ability as a collective healthcare professional and, and certainly healthcare, you know, educator, you know, community to address this issue and to speak out on it because we know, and the statistics are very clear about what happens if we don't, if we allow the minority opinion to be the loudest voice in the room and to guide public policy, we know what happens and yeah. we just can't stand for it. Absolutely. That's not what we're here for. Right. So thank you very, very much for your time today, Dr. Cummings. And, and I'm sure we'll have lots of additional conversations and, and follow up. I'll look forward to it. Thanks. All right. Thank you.